Here we are with God's... Oh, I said we were going to do implications, didn't I? Let's do those quickly uh, of the last session, and, and then we'll jump to uh, God's pleasure in all of creation. Some implications. God is not easy to understand in his complexity, but he is all we need in our trials. He has sovereign control so that nothing is meaningless. That Genesis 50, 20, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Nothing is meaningless to those who believe in the sovereignty of God. We have our problems. We struggle with why God would ordain this or that. But if you take God out of the picture and then try to deal with the horrors in your life, life becomes absurd. And living an absurd life is very difficult. It will probably produce more suicides than this. Back in the 60s where I was cutting my teeth, existentialism and the theater of the absurd was a scary philosophy. Especially if you walked up close to it and decided you might want to believe it just because it was so in. But if you embrace it, existentialism simply meaning existence precedes essence. You act in total freedom and create your essence. You don't consult with what it means to be human and then act accordingly. You just act and become something. And that still exists massively. You create. I, I just wrote a blog, which will turn up in a week or so probably, called Reinventing Parenthood, just because of the front page of the Tribune three or four days ago, where people's conceptions of what they're, you know, a, a single woman who says, I want a baby, so she gets a baby put in her tummy, and, and she rolls a baby, and then she gets three or four of those, or, or she has sex with three or four guys, has three or four kids. She keeps in touch with the guys, because it's really good for them to know who their dads are. We don't want to marry, because that's not helpful, and, and it's whole ways of doing stuff today, reinventing the world. That, that's the fruit of existentialism. Existence creating essence. You don't start with, God defines an essence, I know who I am under God, and I live my life in obedience to my essence as God defines it, and find freedom in being what he made me to be. That's totally not existentialism. It's scary to live in an absurd world where your essence is evolutionary. What we're teaching our kids in school with regard to naturalistic evolution I went, I just got to, I went to a mainline Protestant liberal church three weeks ago. So I'm on a writing leave. I went to about seven different churches. And I got to make my annual foray into the world of mainline liberal Protestantism. Huge building, full of well-to-do people, glass windows, mammoth organ, huge choir, and... Uh, all the language still preserved, and they don't believe it. My wife and I went there a couple of years ago, and the pastor said, when he read the story of Jesus walking on the water, he said, now, when I was a child, I used to believe these things, that these were literal, and, but we know, this is the way he's talking in the pulpit, we know better than that now. And they demythologize it and, and draw some spiritual truth out of, out of what it means to be you know, strong and overcome obstacles and whatnot. And there was a children's choir. 
and they printed in the bulletin. I quote this in the blog. They, they, they printed in the bulletin the, the lyrics, and the children sang something like this. Whales and turtles, people and giraffes, all lives are equal. I sat there about 18 rows back. You're not teaching those kids to sing that. You're not telling them that people and giraffes are equal. I was driving up here today. Did you turn on NPR this morning? This is about an hour ago. I was driving up here, and they're talking about talking to plants. I mean, they were serious. I thought, laugh, please laugh. This is a routine. And it wasn't. Now, I know, play music around plants and talk to plants. They might grow differently. But this guy said, I'm not sure whether they're understanding. I mean, I, I can scientifically grasp vibrations affecting a plant. I can get there. But you telling me you actually are contemplating the possibility that uh, Narnia is real. The trees talk. That's where we are. A world in which God doesn't exist and we are the product of evolution like giraffes and whales and turtles. And so um, let's be religious and have all life be sacred. You don't want to go there because when your grandmother is cut down or your husband and wife is taken out of the way or you get cancer, there's not a lot of comfort there. That's absurd. God is merciful in all his severity and near the brokenhearted. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. I used that text this morning when I was at the hospital too. God will win in the end and nothing will have been suffered in vain. If you've left any house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or land for his name's sake, you receive back a hundredfold and in the age to come, eternal life. Okay. Pause. Switch. Number four, God's pleasure in all of creation. The material world is not a problem for God or a mere temptation for us or a temporary starting point to be thrown away in the future. I mean, all, the, all three of those are real possibilities that people have embraced. God made it. And I, when I say material world, I mean everything that relates to our five senses. Everything. Everything that's not God and not mere spirit. God made it and said six times, he saw what he had made and it was good. He plans for the created world to be renewed and eternal. So at Bethlehem, and I know lots of you are not from Bethlehem, and that's great, but at our churches, let's not be guilty of what several writers who have just recently written and accused us of, and perhaps 
partly rightly, of thinking in our future, of our future merely in terms of a disembodied heaven. When I was with the family of Les, who passed away yesterday, three days ago, while he was still alive, they said, no, no, show us in the Bible what it will be like for him in a few days. Not, not after the resurrection, but in a few days. So I took them to Philippians 1, to die is gain. I do not know which I shall choose, whether to stay and be with you is more necessary for ministry, but I would rather go to be with Christ, because that is far better. So I said to them, it will be with Christ, and it will be far better. Those two things I know. Then I took them to 2 Corinthians 5, where it says, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. I would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So I said, thirdly, it's like going home. It's homecoming to be with the Lord. So between the death, when our bodies lie in the ground, and the resurrection, when we are given our, our new bodies, there is this season, and it's not sleep. So many talk about soul sleep. It's conscious, sweet, powerful, deep, glorious, sinless fellowship with Jesus. I get that word sinless from uh, Hebrews 12. The spirits of just men made whole. That'd be a, a fourth thing you could say about that. Now, that's not, I, I said this very, very plainly to them. I said, that's not the final ideal condition of your husband and father. Ideal would be to have his body back. God didn't make you to be a disembodied spirit. We're not Platonists who think the body is bad. And the sooner we can get rid of it, the better. That's not what Christianity teaches. That's what we're looking at here. It's the goodness of creation and God, while he has plunged it into uh, ruin at the fall, Romans 8, 18 to 23, is going to reclaim it. And the whole creation will be glorified with the very glory of the children of God. So C.S. Lewis gets it right. There is no use trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. I know some muddle-headed Christians have talked as if Christianity thought that sex or the body or pleasure were bad in themselves, but they were wrong. Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body, that some kind of body is going to be given to us even in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, our energy. And that, that's the name of the book. And I'm sorry I didn't give you the page, but it came from the first book of Edwards that I, uh, <laughs> Lewis, that I ever read, Mere Christianity. So, statement, the body, material world, is good. Now, here's a text. 
to put underneath Lewis, because Lewis is not authoritative. The Bible is. And here's Bible. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Now, we expect something really gross, maybe, coming. They'll depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. This is amazing, demons, teachings of demons. So what, what do the demons teach? Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage. Why would they do that? Well, because sex is dirty. Bodies are to be, you know, restrained and just limited. And don't do all that. Forbid marriage, require abstinence from food. So now you got food and you got sex. Forbidden. That's demonic. Pretty strong words. It's demonic. I wonder if there's a connection there between what Paul says here and what he says in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says to the husband and wife, do not come apart from each other except by mutual agreement for prayer, then quickly come back together, lest what? The devil tempt you. Not having sex in marriage is to play with the devil. This says the devil wants you to think sex is bad. The devil wants you to think food is, is bad. The devil wants you to become a docetist. The devil wants you to become a dualist. There's God, there's spirit, there's angels, all good, all glorious. Then there's creation, stuff, bodies. That's dangerous. That's bad. That's demonic talk. God created them, on the other hand, to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, you could say this in some really striking ways. <laughs> okay, so the airwaves, the movies, the internet, just full of illicit sex. Pornography, people taking their clothes off. Blog after blog of people taking their clothes off, I presume, because I stumbled onto one one time. I was so embarrassed. My son, I was at my son's blog. I don't, I've never looked at pornography on the internet. It's not one of my big struggles. I mean, I struggle with the desire, but I've never gone there. I've never punched around. I was one time looking at Carson's blog while he was in Scotland, and I didn't realize that at the top there's this little thing that says next blog. I thought that meant his next blog. It didn't. It just meant the next one in WordPress or whatever. And I went there and, I said, what? What are you doing? Click that off there. So it, we, we, know, we know why the body has such a bad reputation, because what people do with it, right? Movies, they're always taking their clothes off, they're always talking about stuff. It's, it just, we have to be so vigilant today over our eyes and the entertainment, the movies and the television. Good night, I don't even have a television. And one of the reasons I haven't had a television for, ever since I've been married, which is 40 years, except for three years in Germany because it was so helpful learning German. 
is because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a weakling. I'm, a, I'm addictive. I'd, I'd just watch it if I had it. And so on vacation, when I turn the TV on, I say, we don't have one of these because just the ads are so titillating and fill my mind with so many sexual innuendo and thought that I thought, how does anybody walk with Christ if they have a television? So there. <laughs> All of you. Folks, how do you do that? You're just most wonderfully strong. I'm not. So I have to protect myself. So I understand why people would be demonic. Say the body's bad. But that's not God's idea. Receive food and marriage, food and sex here with thanksgiving. What got me off on that little tangent about movies, uh, internet was um, those, it's created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Sex and food is created for believers. Everybody else is a prostitute. Every unbeliever who is enjoying their food without giving thanks is a prostitute. They're taking what God gave and said, this is my gift to you. It's very precious. It's very real. I'm giving it to you. And the reason I'm giving it to you is so something about myself so that you would feel in this pizza or steak love for me, gratitude to me. This should be an act of worship. Isn't that what that says? To be received with thanksgiving. That's what worship is. As you eat, not just at the beginning, thank you, Lord, for this food. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> no, it's just every bite. God, you're good. You're so good. You're so kind that I can chew. I was sitting with Talith the other day. Things hit me like this sometimes. I'm chewing. I forget what we were eating. Somebody gave us something, maybe spaghetti. I said, think of it, Talitha. When was the last time you bit your tongue? You haven't bit your tongue for months. Do you realize that you're chewing three or four times a day, hundreds of times, and your teeth are coming down way harder than you think they are? Because if your tongue gets under those teeth, it really hurts when it comes down. And right now, your tongue is in there maneuvering this spaghetti under your teeth at a microscopic closeness. And you're not even thinking about it. And you never, almost never bite your tongue as this tongue maneuvers that food under these grinders. And it's never coming down on your tongue. How in the world does that happen? I was just blown away. So there's something to be thankful for. I mean, what, what, if, you, what if you had to think about moving your tongue? to make sure it just got close enough to push the spaghetti under your teeth, but not so close that it would get bitten on. If you had to think about that every single time, and then you'd make mistakes every 10th or 8th time, and it would hurt, and eating would stop being fun <laughs> or enjoyable. <laughs> Actually, I suppose eating should be fun. 
I'm just marvel at God's goodness here. I mean, that, that that's in the Bible should make us very thankful that foods and marriage are for believers who know the truth that he made it. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Pretty heavy, glorious, amazing statement of the goodness of creation. Um, all his works are his delight. His works of creation. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. And the context in Psalm 104, as you know, is just long lists of his material, physical creations. He rejoices in his works. One reason is that they display his glory for people to see. Psalm 19, the heavens, heavens, that means the planets and the sun and the moon, stars, declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. So as you walk out of here and you look at clouds or look at sunshine or look at trees or look at spring or look at uh, daffodils or tulips that come up, let them speak to you. They are speaking. They're speaking and they're speaking about God. That's why they exist. Now, God could have done it another way. He could have created a universe where everything black and white. He created colors. He could have created with only right angles. And he created many angles and mostly no angles. God seems to be mainly into curves. Clouds, waves, trees, mo mostly curves. We, we make right angles. God makes curves. He made all this the way... He did it, and he didn't have to do it this way. He could have just created angels and disembodied human souls. And they could have fallen, and, and we could have hated each other that way and, and been sinful, and Jesus could have come and suffered spiritually in our place. He could have done it that way, I suppose. He didn't. He did it this way. This, this way. This is just, you shouldn't, it's like, C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton and the Inklings tried to open our eyes. They said, when you're walking down the street, you've heard me say this, when you're walking down the street, don't marvel that somebody has a big nose or a, or a little nose. Marvel that they have a nose. It's so weird. These are weird. These are weird. They're so weird. I mean, look at them. They can see little funny. It's just weird. I mean, noses and ears are weird. We just take them for granted. <laughs> uh, what was the name of that program? 40 years ago. Twilight Zone. <laughs> Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Twilight Zone. Oh, I thought it was, why have you heard of the Twilight Zone if you're under 40? Um, so Rod Serling, all these stories, and the one I remember is of a, the whole story is you don't see anybody's faces, they're doctors, and they have this woman bandaged up, and all you hear is 
she was born as a horrible anomaly, just horrible. And they've done surgery in the hopes that they might help her. And the whole show is them talking and watching and working. You don't see anybody's faces. And then the end of the show, they start undoing this. Will the surgery work? And it comes off, and she's spectacularly beautiful. And they all go, ah! And then the, the camera pans up, and they all have pig faces. I never forgot that, obviously. <laughs> and the, the, the point of the story for, for me is, could have been that way. We could have pig faces, and we'd think they were really pretty. <laughs> His handiwork, telling the glory of God. So... Here's the blog from yesterday. Atheists miss the joy. If you look at sunsets and sunrises, I don't know if you can see this. I just copied this off the internet yesterday, last night. If you look at sunsets and sunrises without knowing that God is painting them, then and there, you'll miss the point. Sunsets and sunrises do not just happen. God does them. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You make them shout for joy. So what are they so happy about? Well, because they are telling the glory of God. How happy is the rising sun to display the glory of God? Answer, in them God has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy, a bridegroom beaming and Eric Little feeling God's pleasure when he runs. Sunrises and sunsets are like that. They bid us join their joy in putting God on display in the world. So when God chose an analogy to describe the point of the sun rising in the morning, he said the point is like a bridegroom going out of his chamber and like a man running his race. Remember, here goes Eric Little putting his head back and feeling God's pleasure. Don't, don't assume with naturalistic evolutionary philosophy that the sun rose this morning on its own. It didn't. God did it. Another thing C.S. Lewis said one time moved me so deeply, or was it Chesterton? It was Chesterton. He said, the difference between being an adult and being a child is that children never get tired of doing the same simplest thing over and over again. Do it again, Daddy. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. And I used to test them just to see how long this would last. They always wanted it longer than I could do it. Read the same page, read the same book, do it again, do it again. And he said, that's the way we ought to be with the sunrise. Do it again, Dodd. Do it again. Do it tomorrow. Would you do it tomorrow? I'll be watching. That's amazing. You did it again. Instead, we... Science. Science got this figured out. The world goes like this. Why? Why? I mean, really, can anybody explain why this thing keeps spinning? 
why it keeps rotating, why it can, I mean, why don't I feel wind? Well, it's because there's an atmosphere, <laughs> really. The mysteries surrounding us are imponderable. We should be filled with awe and wonder and worship in this world all day long if we had eyes to see and we were more childlike. But he said, becoming an adult means that you go to the Alps, you're amazed for three days, and then you close the blinds and you watch television. Even pictures of the Alps on television. That's the way we are. That's sad. So ask for a childlike heart. Even the creation that does not... See, I had to cross something out to make this sense. Even the creation that man does not see, God delights in. So I got that word shouldn't be there, I think. Even the creation that man does not see, God delights in. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Now, I think, okay, he made Leviathan. Now, I don't know what Leviathan is. A big squid, maybe? A big giant squid, 100 feet long, something like that. You made a Leviathan. Why did you make it? Just to watch it play in the water. And most of the time, we're not watching that, right? Now that you can buy the Blue Planet DVD series, you can watch it. You want to worship? Go on Amazon and buy that DVD set and sit down and worship. There was a poem written by one of the romantic poets, Wordsworth, maybe, about the flower that blooms to flourish unseen. You think of it. Think of the millions of, of beauties in the world nobody sees except God and the angels, maybe. And he did that. He just lavishes hills and mountains and valleys with flowers and colors that nobody is there to enjoy except him delighting in the display of his own excellence. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So God sees his wisdom and where we can, we should see his wisdom and marvel at him. Now, here are some problem passages. Here I am telling you that creation is good, sex is good, food is good, it's good to look at sunrises and sunsets. All material things are good. Use them as acts of worship to enjoy God and delight in them. And then you run into texts like this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. One thing have I asked, that will I seek after, not food, 
not sex, not sunrises, but to dwell in the house of the Lord and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. So a text like these um, look like they are considering creation as temptations to idolatry. And all of creation is a temptation to idolatry. I wrote another blog a few weeks ago. I, what I do with the blog is I, if I get an idea and an insight, I throw it out there. So the, the other one was, does, when you pray, lead us not into temptation? Are you saying God leads you into temptation if you don't pray that? Because the Bible says he doesn't tempt anyone, James 1.13. God doesn't tempt any, anyone. He's not tempted. And one of the insights I had as I was pondering through that over these years is every minute of every day, God is putting us before temptation. Everything is temptation. Not Oh, I don't want to go there because I'll be tempted. <laughs> You're being tempted right now. Right now, where you are. But what that means is, there are things right now. There are thoughts you can have, decisions you can make, feelings you can have, which are good or bad. Go, go either way. Right now. And therefore, you are before a fork in the road at every moment. And this way, yielding to the temptation to do wrong. This way, going the right way. So God, if God runs your life, the plans of a man are in his head. God, God designs his footsteps. Therefore, God is leading you through life, and all the temptations that you experience are from him. But you, you don't have to go into them. A temptation can be understood as an objective possibility there. The devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness. It's not a sin to be tempted objectively. Jesus didn't sin when Satan said, just jump off the temple. Eat this bread. I mean, turn this uh, stone to bread. That's not sin to be told to do that by the devil. So when Jesus is praying, Father, lead me not into temptation, he didn't mean don't take me to the wilderness to be tempted. He meant, when by your providence and your good purposes I find myself face to face with the devil tempting me, don't let me go in there. So, we're being tempted by the rising sun and by pizza and sex, in or outside marriage, all the time. What I think this means, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, is this. I think if, if you went to David here, or whoever, I can't remember who wrote this, and say to, to the psalmist, did, did, did you mean you can't enjoy your supper tonight? Did you mean that, that uh, if your wife goes on a trip and you start having strong desires for her body, that's sin. Do you mean that? I think he said, no, no, no. I didn't mean that. What, what I mean is, 
that in those physical pleasures you should find God supremely pleasurable. Find God in and through them. They should become a means to your worship. God ordained that we worship Him through means. I wrote down... You can't read that. See, I wrote myself a note. <laughs> and that note says, Psalm 40, verse 16, and Psalm 70, verse 4, may those who love your salvation say continually, you know what it says? Great is the Lord. Did you ever stop thinking about that? May those who love your salvation, now what's salvation? Salvation is my sins are forgiven, I get out of hell, I get into heaven, I, I'm restored to the people of God. Infinite pleasures await me on a new heavens and a new earth. And what should you say about all that? Great is salvation. Great is the new heavens and the new earth. Great is a healed body with no depression anymore. Great is restoration with friends. Great is forgiveness of sins. Great is escape from hell. Great is entrance into heaven. No! It's not wrong to say that. This is not what it says. It says, let those who love thy salvation say continually, great is the Lord. Why? Because he does all those things to show himself. That's why I say we're always being tempted to idolatry. Preaching could be my idol, could it not? Teaching could be my idol. Study and book writing could be my idol. Growing a church could be my idol. Keeping myself physically fit could be my idol. My daughter could be my idol. The sunrise. Poetry, living in the city. I am constantly beset with temptations to value things more than God. And God has given me those things not merely to tempt me, but to be. You remember the analogy I've used before? C.S. Lewis has got an essay called The Light in the Barn or something like that. And you open the door of a barn. You ever done this? And the barn is got slats in the side and it's a bright sunny day outside you open the door of the barn it's dark in there but through the slats comes a beam of light and as you're standing beside the beam you can see the dust motes flying in it you see this in your bedroom maybe you realize how dirty the air is right i woke up some morning i was like this, i've been breathing this all night this is awful because there's a light beam shining you see floating in the little light beam all these little specks so you're watching it and that's the way most people look at the world. And they, they love it. It's their idol. The beam, it's just beautiful. I love the beam. It's just, oh, I love the beam. I'll write poetry about the beam. I'll buy the beam. I'll surround myself with beams. This is the created world. And, and, and Lewis says, then you walk over into the beam and look up the beam through the crack into the bright sun. And that's God. That's what, that's what beams are for. Beams are not to stand beside and say, I like a beam. The, beam. the beams are, the beams are telling the glory of God. So it's up there. 
It's up there. It's like the little child. You know, you take a one-year-old, say, look over there. And he just looks at your finger. You can't, I, I, this means look over there. And you turn your head. And at some point, the child catches on like, oh, he's not holding out his finger to look at the finger. He's holding out his finger to get me to look at something else. Kind of a strange thing to do. And God is, is all day long, he's just creating fingers everywhere. And they're all pointing to him. And we... I gave you this sentence before, Augustine, so helpful to me. He loves you too little. Talking to God, now he's praying. He loves you too little who loves anything together with you which he loves not for your sake. So that's what I'm trying to say. It is possible to love food, love sex, love people, love preaching, love computers, love stuff non-idolatrously if loving it would be for his sake. And I take that to mean I give you this so that you would receive it with thanksgiving and with the blessing to me and with seeing much of me in it so that I am really in every one of your Earthly pleasures, they are all pleasures ultimately running up the beam in me. So that if they were taken away in death, this is where I think we should all number our days so we get a heart of wisdom. If God this afternoon took all those material pleasures away from you by taking your life and putting you in heaven, that would be gain because you'd be right up the beam and the origin of the beam who is so full of goodness and everything that we love here in its infinite fullness we are going to enjoy in him. So, a conclusion before we take a break. God is glorified by our use of the creation in at least two ways. Feasting and fasting. <laughs> Almost opposites, right? I mean, they are opposites, except they're not opposites in motive. We feast, and we fast. Feasting to show our thanks. We do receive these gifts from you. You made them. We don't belittle them. We will turn them into worship and gratitude. And we fast to show that food is not our God. I don't, I don't mean those to be taken narrowly, like I'm only talking about a big meal and no meal. I'm talking about a lifestyle of rich enjoyment of the world and a lifestyle of self-denial. And they're not opposites. You walk through life, and Paul said, I have learned how to abound, and I have learned how to be in want. I know how to have plenty. I know how to have little. In all things, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can feast. And I can, I can fast because he is my supreme value. And sometimes I enjoy him through eating. And sometimes I enjoy him through saying to him, you're more important to me than eating. God delights in his creation. He made it for us to delight in. And he delights in it because he shows, it shows his glory. And we delight in it because it becomes a means of worshiping him for his glory. Amen.